The Bible has a lot to say about endurance, about perseverance in the life of faith. And I wonder, when, when you think of endurance, what comes to mind? I wonder if the picture you have of endurance might look something like this. <laughs> I, I think we often view endurance as being out in an arid desert area, struggling for survival, parched and thirsty like this man crawling across the sand, desperate to reach that water bottle and get a life-giving gulp of water. He's just hanging on and hanging on and striving to survive. And I think we often feel like that alone, weary, spiritually parched. And because we live in a culture that doesn't often affirm our faith, we may believe that God just wants us to, to tough it out, inch by inch, crawling forward. And as we crawl forward, we might even be wondering, oh, am I going to make it? Or should I just surrender and give up? Well, I don't think that's what God has in mind for his church. He doesn't want us to feel as if we're just holding on for dear life. He doesn't want us crawling forward alone. But he wants us to march forward together as a community of faith. And most importantly, he doesn't want endurance in the church to feel like a struggle to survive, but a steady stride toward victory. And I'm so thankful because we have some excellent role models in the Bible who do exactly that. And this morning we're going to look at a church that's a great example of endurance. And this church was located in the city of Philadelphia. Don't get confused though, we're not talking about Pennsylvania. This city existed in the ancient, excuse me, this ancient church existed in what today is the nation of Turkey. And although, though the name of that city has changed, it's no longer called Philadelphia, that city still exists today. Kind of interesting. But back then in the first century, this city was called Philadelphia, and life wasn't easy for the spiritual ancestors of ours that lived there, and despite the fact that life was hard and faith was hard, they were men and women of faith. They chose to live by faith, and they knew how to keep holding on to Jesus through any and all circumstances. And as we've seen from prior letters... The resurrected Jesus is always watching his followers. He's keeping his eye on us. And as he looks down at this church in Philadelphia, he sees their faithfulness and he writes a letter to encourage them. It's a letter of love, reminding them that for the church of Jesus Christ, endurance is not supposed to be a white-knuckle life of toughing it out. For the church, endurance is optimistic. Endurance is hopeful because faithful endurance always points to the glorious future that God has in store for his children. 
And that message that Jesus gave to the Philadelphians is a message we need to hear as well. So let's see what we can learn from Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. As we've seen every week, Jesus begins these letters that he's dictating, dictating to the Apostle John, who's going to record them and send them on. Jesus begins each of these letters with a distinctive image of who he is. And for the believers in Philadelphia, he makes this statement that he's holding the key of David, and he's opening and shutting things. Excuse me. And as we hear those words, their meaning might not be immediately clear to us. And this is a great chance for you and I to see the way that Scripture is interconnected. And to remember there's a really important principle about interpreting Scripture. Quite often we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. Many times when there's a part of the Bible that we might not quite get, there's another part of the Bible that makes the meaning clear. And that's what we have here. And with a little digging, what we find is that Jesus picked this comment about the key of David from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verses 20 to 23. Let me read that to you. Isaiah 22, 20 to, yes. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He, he shall open, excuse me, I think I messed up here. I need to go back farther. Yes, I do. In that day... I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. See the familiarity there, the similar words we just read? And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he'll become a throne of honor to his father's house. Okay, so now we see where that phrase in Revelation comes from. But we still might not be clear about what it actually means. We can see that someone who holds the key of David has power to open and shut. And that should make sense to us if we think about it for a minute. If, if I give you the key to my house, what have I done? I've given you the power to get in my house. I've given you the authority to get in my house. Whoever holds the key wields power and authority to open and shut doors. And so in this case, the key of David is the power and authority to control the metaphorical doors that allow people to enter the future kingdom of God. And we know that because there are numerous Old Testament prophecies about the coming day when God will establish his eternal kingdom. And it's going to be built around a descendant of King David. And we find one of those prophecies in the book of Samuel, chapter 7, where David is given a revelation from God by the prophet Nathan about the future kingdom. Let me read that to you, 2 Samuel 7, 16 to 17. 
and your house, this is Nathan speaking to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now David obviously wasn't going to live forever. But this idea of the throne of David was going to live together. So now we have a couple of these pieces from the Old Testament, and we can put those pieces together with what Jesus just said here in Revelation. We know that these Christians in Philadelphia, they know the Bible, which means they know what we just read. They also know that Jesus Christ is a direct descendant of King David. And so through this letter that Jesus now is dictating in Revelation, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies because I hold the key of David. It's referenced in the Old Testament, but it winds up with me. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's going to bring about God's eternal kingdom. I'm the one who opens and shuts the entryway to God's kingdom. And I have the power and authority to do this because the key to the kingdom belongs to me. And by the way, no one can overrule the way I choose to use that key. That is a powerful image of Jesus. And why does Jesus give the Philadelphians that particular image? It's because he wants to offer them hope for the future. So they will be encouraged to persevere in the life of faith today. And they need that message of hope. They need that message of reassurance that there's something beautiful to look forward to because they live in a city where it would be so easy to surrender. To surrender to fear, to doubt, or even to disbelief. And there's two primary reasons for it. And the first reason affects every citizen of Philadelphia because that ancient city was situated on an earthquake fault. History records that in the year 17 AD, a major quake swept through that area. It completely destroyed 10 nearby cities, and aftershocks were felt throughout the region, including in Philadelphia, for years. Aftershocks, not for days, weeks, months, but for years. Few things in life are more frightening than living through a major earthquake. I don't know if you know what that's like, but Julie and I lived in Southern California for many years, and we experienced three major earthquakes. And I have to tell you, every time the house started shaking, it was usually at night we were asleep, I bolted out of bed, I started running around the house screaming at the kids, get out of bed, get to a safe place. I'm just, it's pretty fearful. And then I'd go back to the master bedroom and there would be my wonderful wife sleeping through the whole thing. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's a blessing to be a deep sleeper. <laughs> but you know, I think about that and what we experience in Southern California isn't even close to what the people in Turkey are going through right now. They're dealing with the reality of continuing aftershocks, some of them significant, weeks after the first major quake, and those shocks are so severe that people still are frightened to live indoors. 
even if their house or apartment has survived, they're living outside because they're afraid the building's going to collapse on them. And, and this is exactly what the citizens of Philadelphia experienced. And it naturally resulted in a lot of fear. And there's something particularly fearful when we realize that good old solid earth ain't so good and solid. (laughs) And when the physical world acts in a way that produces fear, oftentimes we turn to the spiritual world for comfort. And that can be a very good thing. However, instead of looking to the God of heaven and earth, most Philadelphians turned to paganism. That's actually not a surprise because it grew out of the very reason for which their city existed. And this second reason is why life for a believer was so hard in Philadelphia. Now, now think for a moment about how most cities come into being. Why does a city get created in the first place? Well, as people migrate and settle down, most commonly they settle in a place where there's some resources that will allow them to survive and thrive and perhaps engage in the marketplace. So what do we see? We see communities get established by bodies of water so people can earn a living and feed their families by fishing. We see communities get established where there's plentiful trees so people can engage in logging. We see people settle down where the land is very, very fruitful so they can farm. Sometimes people will settle at a major crossroads recognizing, oh, this could become a center for trade and we could survive and thrive that way. Sometimes a nation will establish a military outpost for defense and a a town will spring up around it. But here's what's odd and different about Philadelphia. It did not fit into any of those normal categories. That city was started for one reason, to extend Greek culture and to do so in order to overpower other cultures. In other words, Philadelphia was started with the specific goal of cultural domination, which is a really unique role for a community. And at the time Jesus dictates this letter, Philadelphia was dramatically succeeding in that role. And as a result, throughout that region, Greek culture was stamping out other languages and other philosophies and other lifestyles and other spiritualities. And while there are some good things about ancient Greek culture, many parts of it are distinctly unchristian, particularly their worship of pagan gods. That form of spirituality was deeply embedded in the culture. Nearly everybody did it, which meant that nearly every day, followers of Jesus had to prayerfully evaluate, where where do I engage the culture and where do I resist the culture? How do I endure this spiritually unhealthy environment in a healthy way? So that I don't surrender my faith. Those aren't always easy questions to answer. 
Not for them. Not for us. We need God's wisdom. And we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to help us faithfully endure when we live in an unfaithful culture. And so for both of these reasons, the uncertainty of our own physical world and the challenge of false spiritualities around us, followers of Jesus must keep our focus on the kingdom of God, the kingdom promised by Jesus. And he holds the key to that kingdom, which means then we endure by choosing to hold on to him. Let's continue on. I know your works, Jesus says to the church. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And so Jesus, as I said earlier, always sees what his followers are doing, and he sees that this church is doing well, and he commends them for that. And what's really fascinating to me is in so many of the other letters we've seen, Jesus, at some point, offers a critique. Here's what you're doing right, but by the way, here's an area I gotta, I gotta talk about because you need to fix it. There's no critique of the Philadelphians. Now, that doesn't mean that they're perfect because <laughs> they're human. What it means is whatever problems they do have, they're not significant enough to need the personal attention of Jesus. And what I find so encouraging is that this church is spiritually strong despite the fact that they only have a, a little power, as Jesus says there in verse 8. And what he's talking about is this, that the church is full of people who are in the minority in that community. So they don't have influence. They don't have authority. They don't have, have power in the community. I, I think we kind of get that, don't we? <laughs> But here's the thing, despite their lack of social standing and social influence, the Philadelphians are not afraid of the culture. And they don't hunker down, they don't hide out. They're not embarrassed to be known as Christians, but they proudly carry the name of Jesus. And so by the way that Jesus commends them, we know they're not surrendering. They're holding firmly on to the Lord. And Jesus wants them to keep doing so. And in response to their faithfulness, he promises to keep their enemies at bay. And in fact, to humble their enemies. And he calls these enemies the synagogue of Satan. Boy, that's a really nice term, isn't it? <laughs> the synagogue of Satan. Hmm. 
And he says it's a group of people who claim to be Jews and are not. Now we don't know exactly what Jesus means by this. Whoever this group is though, Jesus does not view them as real Jews. In other words, they are not faithful people who are trying to be obedient to God. And most likely, they are Jews who have surrendered to the culture. And they even may be worshiping some of the pagan gods. And these phony Jews have joined with the pagan Greeks in harassing Christians. Jesus promises to protect his church from such people. Plus, he promises to protect his church from the judgment that will come on the world. In other words, the protection of Jesus covers both the present and the future. And that was true for the Philadelphians, and it's true for us. And so Jesus says, here's what I will do. And then he says to the believers, here's what you must do. You must continue to endure patiently. Don't surrender until I come back. And he tells them that the way to patiently endure is to hold on to what they have in verse 11. And I think this is a crucial statement that every church has to deeply ponder. Do we know what we're supposed to hold on to? And then, do we know what we're supposed to let go of? We hold on to Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, the messenger of God's good news about the kingdom. We hold on to Jesus, the Savior who died and rose so we could join him in his kingdom. And we hold on to Jesus who watches over us and who gives us the wisdom we need to navigate life as broken people in a broken world. Sadly, though, Sometimes people of faith get sidetracked and we wind up holding on to secondary things that Jesus really would like us to let go of. I have a friend named David who for many years was a church consultant and he would meet with leaders of local congregations that were struggling and he would help help them try to get refocused and get back on their mission, their mission to love one another and to serve those in need and to help spiritually adrift, become followers of Jesus. And these churches were struggling because they weren't doing that. And David interacted with scores of churches, and many of them needed to make fundamental changes in the way they were doing church in order to be effective in their mission, and the majority of them refused to make the necessary changes that would keep them effective. As a result, most of those churches wound up closing their doors. And I once said to David, how could that happen? And I've never forgotten his reply, and I want you to listen to this really carefully. Too many churches are backing into the future, looking forward to the past. Too many churches are backing into the future, looking forward to the past. Oh, let's remember the good old days when life used to be like this. But you see, when a church is looking to the past, 
they're usually not anchored in the message and ministry of Jesus. If we're anchored in the past, it means we're probably holding on to various traditions and practices and preferences. And we make those secondary things such a priority that they distract us from our mission. Here's some examples. Over the course of my life, I've heard many, many believers complain about their churches. (laughs) And I've heard many believers and seen many believers leave their churches. But here's what's fascinating. I've rarely seen someone complain or leave a church making this statement. I just can't be part of that church anymore because they're not on mission. (laughs) That's not what we complain about. That's not why we leave. The most common complaints I've heard usually come from the following list. Complaint number one, the church changed something from the way we've always done it. And it could be changing the music or the seating. What, we got rid of the pews? (laughs) Or carpet or colors or lighting or the order of worship. I I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians arguing over whether communion should be before or after the message. Oh my goodness. Brothers and sisters, Taking communion is what's important. Where we do it in our worship service is a secondary point. You know, I've lived long enough that when I first started in ministry, I would be up here on Sunday morning in a full suit and tie. Back in the day, if I'd stood up to preach dressed like this, I probably would have been tarred and feathered. (laughs) And as the culture got more casual, As people coming to church started dressing more casual, people on the platform started dressing more casual. But you know what? For some people, how the preacher was dressed became the issue. And there were churches that fought over whether or not the preacher had to wear a tie to preach the Word of God. Makes my head hurt. All of those kinds of things, it's holding on to the past and not looking to the future. And when we resist changes in secondary matters, not essentials, but secondary matters, we're putting our traditions and our preferences ahead of our mission. And here's complaint number two. The church isn't meeting my needs. And I've heard a long list of needs. And if we find ourselves saying that, it means we're looking inward and not outward. We're putting our personal preferences ahead of the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us. And and it also means that if we leave because of that, we're opting out of being part of the solution. Jesus wants a vibrant, mission-oriented church. And he has a part for every one of us to play in building his kingdom. And what a tragedy if we miss out on that. Because we put ourselves ahead of the mission. And here's number three. I have to leave because I'm angry at this person in the church. And when someone settles for a broken relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, it's tragic. 
when we leave those dangling things undone, it means that we can't fully move into the future in a healthy way because we're going to be hobbled by a wounded past. And, and that's putting our emotions ahead of our mission. And here's what's really tragic about this. When you and I act like that, it's a sign that we lack faith. Because God says he can help us put up with each other. He can help us forgive each other. He can help us be reconciled to each other. And we can, but only if we yield to the influence of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. So so here's the point. It is incredibly easy for all of us at times to hold on to the sorts of things that I've mentioned. But if we do, then we let them overshadow the mission of the church. And holding on to secondary things is not faithful endurance. It's actually a form of surrender. Because we're surrendering the mission that Jesus gives to us. And therefore, patient Faithful endurance means holding on to Jesus, doing what he asks us to do, and being willing to let go of other things, even if some of those traditions and practices and preferences are dear to us. And Jesus loves what he sees in the church in Philadelphia. These people who are socially weak and spiritually strong. And they're staying on mission, and he wants to help them stay on mission. And so he tells them in verse 8 that he's given them an open door. It's the door to keep building and pursuing the kingdom of God. And because the Philadelphian church is full of people who are faithful to God's word and who are not ashamed of Jesus and who are looking to the future, then it's an open door to their mission. They have an open door to love each other and love their neighbors. And that's the right way to patiently endure. That is the way to hold on to Jesus and to live victoriously. And here's some great news from Jesus at the end of the letter. As we hold on to him, he holds on to us. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, that's a term of victory, isn't it? The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And then Jesus ends as he ends virtually all these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus concludes here with words of hope, words of promise, reminding the church that a faithful life is a victorious life. This isn't military victory. This is spiritual victory. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory that enables us to flourish today in an unfaithful culture and then to spend eternity in the presence of our loving God. 
Jesus began this letter by talking about the key of David, this key that opens the door to the kingdom of God, and now as he wraps up the letter, he refers to the capital city of that future eternal kingdom, and that city is called the New Jerusalem. And God's temple will be there. God's presence will be there. I love thinking about what that experience is going to be like when we live with God in the new Jerusalem forever and we get to experience God's presence personally all the time. And Jesus says God's name and the name of the city will be written on us and we're going to be pillars in the temple. Now, now we're people who like to take the Bible literally, but I don't think we should take that passage literally. I don't think it's meant to be read literally. Jesus isn't going to say, Bruce, welcome to heaven. I'm going to turn you into a stone pillar in the temple. No, that's not happening. (laughs) And we live in a culture that enjoys tattoos, but I don't think God's going to tattoo us with the name of Jesus and, you know, put all this writing on us. The new Jerusalem emblazoned on my forehead. No, I don't think so. I think Jesus is using poetic language to tell us that he's going to put his identity on his followers. That we will be incredibly close to him and that no one, no thing will ever take us away from him. Jesus is saying, if you hold on to me now, I will hold on to you forever. And oh, is that a great promise. And to hold on to him now is to live by faith and to live out the mission that he's entrusted to us. To love one another, to serve people in need, and to help spiritually adrift people find Jesus so they can be welcomed into his kingdom. And as we think about all that, as we think about the victorious way this letter ends, I hope it gives us a different perspective on endurance. Faithful endurance does not look like that picture we saw earlier of a parched man in the desert struggling for survival. Faithful endurance, victorious endurance in the church looks more like this. That's how we endure, not alone, but together, holding on to each other, helping each other move victoriously toward the finish line. We endure victoriously as we look toward the future because somewhere out there is the tape and we're going to cross it one day. So we look outward, not inward. And we walk through the open doors God has given us and we keep pressing on in our mission through any and every obstacle. And the key thing for the church is to recognize, I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. We can do it together. Thurston Christian Church We can encourage each other to wait with patient endurance, to strive with each other as we build the kingdom of God today and as we live with hope, looking to the future, waiting for the eternal kingdom of God to arrive someday. And this is who we are. This is what Jesus asks us to do. 
This is how we patiently endure and endure with a sense of victory each and every day. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, let's never stop listening. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this letter from Jesus gives us such a wonderful picture of hope. Hope for today as we hold on to Jesus and hope for the future as we look forward to your coming kingdom. Father, there's a message here of hope for our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. Help us to keep your end in mind, Lord, so we can endure faithfully and patiently and victorious fulfilling the mission that you've entrusted to our care. And we look forward to that day when we'll live with you forever in the new Jerusalem. May the vision of that, may the hope of that propel us forward each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.